Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast presented by Subway, whose new sweet versus heat chicken sandwiches are making people choose which side they're on. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm joined in studio as always by co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? And Joe, we've got a lot of sweet and a lot of heat so far uh, through most of the first round of the playoffs, but let's start with the uh, the most recent development in the NBA playoffs, and that was another Clippers win at Oracle Arena. Two straight Clippers wins at Oracle. This year, you you gave the Clippers a game in this series because of the Warriors' apathy. I think you could say. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going at least six now. Yeah, and I think I should probably revise that by saying <laughs> I think Warriors' apathy has played into it to a certain extent, but. <clears throat> I honestly think this has as much to do with the Clippers as it does the Warriors. They've played, not only have they played really well, but like the moxie of this team and the resolve and the poise that they play with. In both of the games that they won, there were just so many times when I felt like the Warriors had landed that knockout punch and I was like, okay, that's it. You know, the Clippers are going to roll over. And it's like in last night's game, the Clippers were kind of ahead for the majority of the game and it goes into the fourth quarter the Warriors go to their death lineup. They're making a run. Durant has this dunk with like three minutes left that puts the Warriors ahead by a point. Oracle's going crazy, and it's like, okay, that's it. Great job. Great effort. Yeah, great season, Clippers. Um, and then Lou Williams comes back and scores eight straight points, like the first one of which is a four-point play over Kevin Durant. Then he absolutely cooks Durant on a switch and then does the same to Andre Iguodala. It's like there's no quit in this team, and they play with what I would have to describe as big dick energy. Like they just have so much belief in themselves they don't lay down and they like you get the sense they really believe that they can win and obviously the Warriors are still a far better team but it's like get your act together you know like take this team seriously like they're punching you in the mouth and I don't know they're just like even Steve Kerr pointed to this after the game and Kevin Durant said the same thing like the sense of urgency isn't really there which I suppose is understandable it's the first round you know they're maybe looking ahead to the Rockets they have bigger fish to fry but I don't know, man. Like, they, they still have a team to beat, and they're going back to L.A. for Game 6, which I would expect them to win, but I don't think it's a great sign for them they're getting dragged to six games um, by a Clippers team that I think a lot of people expected to get swept. Yeah, and it goes back to something we've been saying all year. with the And I think it, it speaks a little bit to just the Clippers mentality. You mentioned the big dick energy, but they really do have a bunch of guys like Lou Williams, chief among them. He doesn't care what your expectations are. He's coming in there to do what he does. Montrez Harrell, um, like I've tweeted it a couple times this season, but Montrez Harrell like, is the basketball embodiment of the Ray Liotta cocaine gif on Twitter, like from Goodfellas. Like, he just plays with such a ridiculous amount of energy. Like, so maybe the Clippers are a bad example for an opponent because they're just going to come at you anyway. But again, I just teams don't seem to fear the Warriors anymore. There's mm-hmm. not that sense of like, oh, what's the point? We're going to like, no, it's like, ah, oh, let's push them. Because if we push them, I don't think they're going to push back. Well, I think to that extent, like the Clippers are a great example of an opponent that, you know, the like that should give us some pause, right? Like right. if teams are coming at the Warriors with everything they have. And as it goes later and later in the playoffs, like you think the Rockets are going to go into that second round series like with any fear of the Warriors after how close they came last year and after seeing what the Clippers have managed to do to them? I mean, I don't know. There was, there was this one moment in that game two when they blew that 31-point lead that I went back to after the game and I was like, it just made me think. And it, it, the Warriors were up 27 points at the time. And Draymond Green like has this Herculean block of, a I think, a Lou Williams three-pointer. 
And the ball, after he tips it, is just sort of like drifting in the air. And there's three Warriors around the ball. And nobody goes to get it. And the Clippers end up recovering the loose ball and scoring. And Draymond is, like, flipping out. Even though they're up 29 points still or whatever. And nobody is, like, even really paying attention to his histrionics. And obviously, that was kind of what started the avalanche in that game that turned the tide against them. I just... I don't know. We've been saying it all year. There's a there's a vibe about this team that I can't quite put my finger on, and people will throw out the comps. You know, 2011 Lakers, 2004 Lakers, 2014 Heat. You know, whatever it is, when you see a team that sort of reached the end it's of its cracks run, cracks in the foundation, and whether it's that they're physically out of gas, they're emotionally worn out, they're tired of each other, whatever it is, like we've seen how difficult it is to sustain a run like this, and what it looks like at the end. And it's starting to look like we might be seeing the end here. And I mean, that's, you know, regardless of whether Durant sticks around or not, I mean, I'm talking about this season, this playoff run right now. I, I'm going to have a tough time picking. I mean, we're not even there yet, but I'm going to have a tough time, I think, picking between the Warriors and the Rockets if they do end up playing each other in the next round. Like, I, I'm not sold that the Warriors are going to make it to the conference finals right now. Yeah, I think the thing is, too, like, I'm... Uh... And I'm assuming you feel the same way. Like, I'm not at all concerned about them beating the Clippers. They're still going to win this series. Yes. And look, there's examples, you know, in not so distant history. The Celtics in 2008. Remember, they got dragged to seven games by like a losing Hawks team. Like an under 500 Hawks team mm-hmm. and still went on to win the championship. So it's not like a team can't struggle in the first. But no, the context is different. Though. The context is different. And also what I keep hanging on is... The Warriors obviously come into a season with the, like, the widest margin for error because of all the talent at their disposal. But every extra game they have to play, especially while Houston's chilling, waiting for the second round, every extra game they have to play does narrow that margin for victory. Every extra game they have to play, not that we want to see anything like this happen, but every extra game they have to play, you know, there's an injury risk. Someone could get hurt in that extra game. And if they don't blow a 31-point lead in Game 2, they don't even have to play a Game 5 yesterday. And now they don't really come out with their best effort in Game 5. And it's like, now you got to go back on the road and get on a flight and go to L.A. and spend some time in L.A., you know, L.A. nightlife, what that does to guys. Like, there's just so many factors that are rolled in. It's not even about whether or not they beat the Clippers. It's about that margin for error that continues to shrink every, you know, every roadblock they put in front of themselves. Yeah. And I don't know. For me, it's just eye test stuff, you know? And it's like, okay... We've been waiting all season for them to flip the switch and to show that like next defensive gear that we know they have. And we finally get to the playoffs, and it's like, okay, this is where we're going to see it. They had a absolutely abysmal defensive game last night. And I'm talking like, Lou Williams has picked them apart in the pick and roll all series with Montrez Harrell. But it's like some of the passes that Harrell was catching, he's catching them at like the free throw line or even further out. And nobody is stunting into the lane to divert his drive. He's catching the ball at the free throw line, taking two steps and dunking the ball. And like, forget catching. There was a couple plays, especially in that late, uh, in the fourth quarter, where he wasn't even cleanly catching it. He was like kind of bobbling it in the lane and no one was there to like strip it or pressure him or... Yeah, and you know what? The the Warriors at their best are just like an absolute defensive menace. They're helping and recovering, like they're switching and it's, you know, you can't puncture the defense at all. And it's like, Lou Williams getting to the lane at will. Um... And they're getting a lot of open threes, you know, whether it's out of kickouts out of those pick and rolls or just by swinging the ball around the perimeter. Like, I don't know. This, this just does not look like the same Warriors team to me. And again, it's entirely possible. They go to the next round, they wake up and 
they, they beat the Rockets and they do look like that team again once they have an opponent that they do kind of deeply respect. I think the Clippers ought to have earned their respect by now. And the fact that we still haven't seen that reflected in the on-court product has to be at least a little bit alarming. Yeah, well, I, I think one thing that concerns me, or I guess maybe should concern Warriors fans, is that if you usually if you look at a series like this when a team that has such a talent advantage is struggling to put a team away, you can point, at least on the offensive end, you can usually point to something where it's like, okay, well, could, Kevin Durant's going to shoot better than that. They'll be fine. Or, okay, Curry will come around. Or mm-hmm. Clay will come... Uh, right now, Clay Thompson's shooting 49-44-100. Kevin Durant's shooting 56-39-96. Steph Curry, 49-51-97. These guys are shooting the lights out. Yeah, well, it like, hasn't been their offense. No, That's I know, I'm but saying. what I'm saying is there's no, there's nothing that they can even point to on the offensive end where it's like, well, even if our defense slags, we'll just pick it up a notch. Like, they're literally shooting the lights out and scoring at will, and they still can't put the Clippers away because their defense has been that bad. Yeah. No, it's weird. I mean, if there's one thing I would point to on offense is that I think they're doing that thing where Steph's spending a little bit too much time off ball. I just think that makes them easier to guard, and they're making things easier on the Clippers who, like, don't really have anybody to defend him. I know they are swarming him. Like, when he gets the ball or when he's coming off pick and roll, like, they're sending two bodies at him. But accept that. Embrace that. Use those four on threes to your advantage. Um, but playing him off ball, it's just, like, easier to, to track him. Like, you know, if you want to just have one guy who's, who's face guarding him or, like, um, you're able to switch those off-ball screens, it just makes it a little bit easier than if you're putting the ball in his hands. But... Durant's been so good that it's almost hard to quibble one way or another. So Steph's actually taken less shots than Clay in this series. Well, there you go. Yeah, um, I think you know again part of that is the Clippers' defensive strategy, right. but I think the, the Warriors could make more of an effort to run their offense through them. All right, from from a series that's still going to a couple teams that are already on the outside looking in, and a couple teams that came in with to the season with high hopes, the Utah Jazz and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Season's done already. Uh, in very disappointing fashion. I think we can start with the Thunder because I think they had the most disappointing postseason. The Jazz, I think people hope they could put up a better fight against Houston, but the Thunder, especially with the injury to Nurkic, like they should have won that series, or at least that's what we assumed, and had a path to the conference finals. Instead, they're out in five games on an absolutely epic Dame Lillard game, Dame Lillard game winner, Dame Lillard meme, Dame Lillard post-game press conference, Dame Lillard wave goodbye. Like an epic Dame Lillard everything. It was Dame time. Next question for Russ. What did you see in this series? Is there anything, if you were a Thunder fan right now, that you would cling, like, hope to for next season and going forward? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, Paul George was one of the five best players in the NBA this season. Uh, that's something to hang your hat on right there. And he's... 28 and I know there's definitely always an impulse when a guy kind of has a career year later on in his career sort of out of nowhere to think that regression is coming I think that's possible I mean if he if he doesn't get injured and isn't dealing with that shoulder issue in this series I think we're telling a much different story he had a fantastic game five but up until that point he really didn't look like himself and I think that obviously would have made a huge difference. Uh, He did not shoot the ball particularly well, and we've talked about the Thunder's struggles to shoot as a team. So for their best shooter to be going through a slump at the worst possible time, um, obviously, you know, was not going to give you the desired outcome. I I think, you know, you can still look at Paul George and be like, look, that's a franchise guy. It's a legitimate franchise player. It's problematic that they don't have a ton of financial wiggle room to sort of build out the team around him. 
And obviously, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk about that Westbrook contract. Westbrook is, you know, himself only 31. I know his athleticism is waning a bit. His shot was, I don't know what happened. I mean, obviously the three-point shooting has always been a bit of an issue for him, but like, uh, hit, like the, the complete evaporation of those pull-up two-pointers that have been so important for him, you know, in the pick and roll over the years. His free throw shooting, the way that that fell off. He was legit the worst pull-up shooter in the NBA by I, metrics. Like. I know. And so I don't – it's weird. Like, what do you attribute that to? You're talking about, like, yeah, Westbrook, when his athleticism goes, what does he have? It's not really like you need athleticism in order to be able to shoot the ball. Obviously, like, there's an element of that. Like, you want to be able to create separation. You need some lift on your jumper. But it's not like I saw anything that was like, oh, it. Like I, I can totally understand why he can't shoot the ball anymore. He's old. He's broken. I didn't see that from him. And really, he, all season long, he was fantastic finishing at the rim. And that totally went away in the playoffs. Like, he couldn't finish at all. And I, I just think, like, he still has more to give than people are giving him credit for. I, I don't maybe he'll fall off a little bit next season, but I don't see a significant drop-off coming for him. So I think if they can rejigger this team a little bit around Westbrook and PG, they can still be a force. Like, th- this could still be a team that wins a round or two next year. And, e- you know, even if you look at this series against the Blazers, it's like they were right there in game one. They should have won that game five. I mean, they're up 15 points with seven minutes to play. And if they do, they're going back to OKC with a chance to send it to a game seven. So... I, I do think that there is still hope for this team. This is a big setback. I think, you know, they... I, I don't say they had, a, they had a ton riding on this season compared to some other teams because they don't really have any key free agents this offseason. And that's one thing, you know, in the past, it's like they have had to worry about guys leaving in the summer. They can at least say they have this team that won 49 games that was at its peak playing like one of the three best teams in the Western Conference. They have that team coming back more or less intact. Yeah, and I think the the number one thing for them is health. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Paul George's shoulder. We talked about Stephen Adams before. Al. Stephen Adams, man. He just was not the same in he the second half of the season. He got destroyed by Ennis He got Cantor. played off the floor, essentially. Yeah. Like, it was it was jarring to watch. And I, I think for the Thunder, if... Number one is health. If Paul George and Stephen Adams are healthy, and Paul George is even close to what he was this past season, and you've got Westbrook as, like, a running mate... I think the core of, yeah, a 45-50 to 50 win team, if not more, is still there. But for the love of God, they need to find some shooting. Yeah. Because if you, honestly, if you surround Russ, PG, and Steven Adams with shooting, that's a great team. And for whatever reason, they just had, like, they bring in Patrick Patterson to be a 3 and D big man. And he's legit probably going to be out of the NBA mm-hmm. very soon, if not next year. The guy cannot buy a minute right now. You know, like guys like Terrence Ferguson and Jeremy Grant at times did kind of flash that potential, and maybe those guys. Grant shot thirty nine percent from three this season. That's what I'm saying. On like so a like, decently high volume of attempts. You know, too. maybe those guys just continue doing that. I don't know, but yeah, they need Ferguson to be like a reliable three right. point shooter. They, and yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they just don't have a ton of wiggle room, right? They need it to be internal development more than anything. Like they'll have the taxpayers mid level. I mean. They don't have a whole lot else, and they don't have a lot of trade chips to work with either. This is kind of why I was saying, like, what what hope is there? Because I'm I'm not at all one of those guys that thinks being like I enjoy teams that are good for like ten to fifteen years. I, there's no shame in that. If you're mm-hmm. a forty five plus win team, fifty win team every year, you're at least in the mix. You're a couple good bounces or injury breaks on the opponent side away from maybe getting to the finals. Like, there's no shame in that. You should build teams that way. Blazers are a perfect example. Exactly. So I'm not trying to say that there's no hope in the Thunder being a good team, but 
for a fan base like OKC's, so even though they're new, they did have that taste of like that young team that got to the finals and they were supposed to win. And then you get Paul George and like, for them, I feel like what hope is there because how capped out this team is, how bad that Westbrook contract is. And like, you can even start looking at the Steven Adams contract. I like Steven Adams when he's healthy, obviously he's super valuable, but Steven Adams is going to make over $53 million over the next two years. Like, I just look at this team and I'm like, okay, unless they can find cheap shooters or hit a home run somewhere with the 21st pick and yeah, coming like I I don't see where their ceiling is going to get raised. And I don't know for this team, for this organization, is being a 45 to 50 win team and a first or second round out every year good enough? I think it just has to be. I mean, what's your alternative? And, and, you know, to go back to the parallels between them and the Blazers, how many people after the Blazers got swept last year were saying that they needed to blow up the team, that they could never win in the playoffs, and it was time to move forward? Like, they kept it together, brought back basically the exact same team, brought back Terry Stotts, and, you know, I don't think the Blazers are going to win a championship this year, but you think the Blazers fans would trade the season they've had this year for anything? I mean, that, that Game 5 performance from Lillard, that shot is going to live on forever. That's their championship. And and I think that's good enough. I mean, you know, not not every team can win a championship. I mean, one team out of 30 wins it every year, and there has to be some in between. And I think it's possible to imagine the Thunder having a similar type of season next year where Paul George is the same guy that he was this year and is healthy for the playoffs and has a series like Dame Lillard just has hits a shot like Dame Lillard just did. I mean, that is still on the table. Like, they are still in that mix. You know, if you look ahead and and try to imagine a post-KD Warriors world, I don't think they're, like, that far behind the rest of the teams in the West, so long as Westbrook doesn't suffer a monumental fall-off. I mean, I don't even know if he has to suffer a monumental fall-off. Like, we're talking about, obviously... But that's assuming that he... Like, he was better during the regular season than he he was was in this series. He was, and, like, I still love watching him, like, the relentless energy he plays. And there's obviously value in what he does. Yeah. But I don't know, man. Like, we're talking about... He's got to reimagine his game a little bit. And sure. do you have any faith in Russell Westbrook doing that? Like, given how stubborn his game is, and even how, like, we're talking about a, yeah, one of the no, more I do. ball-dominant I do. players in the league yeah. who can't shoot and is a lazy defender. Like, I... I don't think he's a lazy defender. He's just an inattentive defender. He spaces out. He loses track of his man. He he ball watches way too much. But is he lazy? I guess he can be at some points. And, you know, that is probably a product of the fact that he does control the ball so much at the offensive end, is going, you know, 110% all the time when he's running in transition or, you know, when he's trying to get you a bucket late in the game. Like, he, he doesn't really conserve his energy for the defensive end. So those two things could go hand in hand. The problem has always been like, yeah, you'd love for him to cede some control of the offense to be able to play off ball a little bit more, but he has no off ball gravity. So if you have a guy like Westbrook, uh, you know, who has some on ball gravity and a guy like Paul George, who has a lot of off ball gravity, obviously, you know, you're optimizing them in the configuration where Russ is dominating the ball. That just makes way more sense. And there are other ways that they can weaponize him off of the ball. Like you you talk about the energy he plays with, like, he could channel that into cutting, into screening. And he is still a decent spot-up shooter. You talked about how he was the worst pull-up shooter in the league this season. Like, trade some of those pull-ups for spot-up jumpers. I just think that makes things a little bit more challenging um, because regardless of whether 
he improves his shooting even a little bit next season, defenses are still going to ignore him when he doesn't have the ball. The other team that I want to talk about that was recently eliminated, the Utah Jazz. You know, last year they have that crazy run to finish off the season, and then they eliminate the Thunder, and they bow to the Rockets in five games, I think, five games yep. last year. But it's fine because they took that step, and Donovan Mitchell looks like a budding superstar, and Rudy Gobert is the defensive player of the year, and they run it back, and they're good again, and they have a really good second half of the season again. And they run into the Rockets in the first round instead of the second round, and James Harden and coaches pick them apart. And they get one win at home, but that's it. And they never – the first two games weren't competitive at all. Mm-hmm. They don't ever look like a challenge, like a, a, a but, series threat to yeah. win this series. Like, what's – you know, how will we remember this Jazz team? And again, what what is their hope going forward? I mean, their hope going forward – I still have a lot of faith in Mitchell. I think he was overextended in this series and probably all season. And I think that speaks to the Jazz need to upgrade their point guard position. And if you look toward the offseason, I mean, Rubio is going to be a free agent. I doubt that he's back. As much as I think he was an important part of their team, I think they'll probably look to, uh, you know, find an upgrade at that position and somebody with a little bit more shooting. And they have an opportunity to have close to max cap space, depending on, like, they would have to renounce at least Kyle Korver, maybe Derek Favors as well, though I imagine they probably want to bring Favors back because he had a great season and was maybe their best player in the playoffs, to be honest. Still such an underrated defender, too. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But even I think in renouncing Corver, they can clear close to like 30 million in space. Now, is any, like, is Kemba Walker going to give Utah a look? Um, do they have the goods to swing a Mike Conley trade? I mean, maybe favors even is the piece that gets that done. Although I don't know if that's really doing it for Memphis. I don't know. It's tough to see how they can upgrade that position, but they're still going to be a defensive force. Um, and Gobert, as much as was made of how poorly he played in those first two games, I thought he, was, he really was a lot better in the last three. And they didn't lose the series at the end of the day because of their defense. I mean, they got picked apart by Harden in those first two games, but after that, they did a really good job on him, I thought. They actually sort of went back to that scheme, like the Bucks adjacent scheme, but they got even more aggressive with it rather than just like sitting on Harden's left shoulder, literally playing directly behind him. So he couldn't get that shot off at all. He had no choice but to go into the lane. And Gobert, I thought, did a really good job of adapting. He was in actually the right spot in that defensive coverage from the third game on. They lost because they couldn't score. And mightily disappointed in Joe Ingles who just had a terrible series the Jazz as a whole could not shoot Joe worth Ingles shot like 29% from three in the series this yeah. guy is one of the elite shooters of the last few years I think like honestly like who was their best three-point shooter in the series? maybe Jay Crowder anyway point being like as a team they shot the ball terribly and I think you know that was part of what contributed to Mitchell being just overextended in this series because they don't have any real like one-on-one scoring and it fell to him to try and create stuff. And I think he was just overburdened trying to do that. But there are a lot of other skills that he brings to the table that I really like. And I wrote about his passing uh, in one column after, I think, game three. You know, that's a skill that I think has really popped for him this season. I don't think he took any steps forward really as a scorer, but he's still super young. And I have a lot of faith that he is going to put it all together at some point in time. And with him and Gobert, I think you have a really nice young core, one that's going to be solid defensively, and hopefully, you know, they put the right pieces around those guys, and they can be a top-level team at both ends. I don't, I, I'm not too concerned about the Jazz, and I, I've heard a lot of people say that maybe they're just a regular season team. I don't think that's fair, given 
how well they played against the Thunder in yeah. the first round last year, the fact that they have just run into a terrible matchup against a very, very, very good Houston Rockets team two years in a row. And again, I thought they made some some sound adjustments and did a much better job games three through five. Very easily could have won last night. I mean, they had leads at various points throughout the fourth quarter and just kind of couldn't get over the finish line at the end of the day. If they shot like they were capable of shooting throughout this series, I think it's going six or maybe even seven games. Like, I, they are capable of doing that. I, I think it's not a great matchup for them. Specifically, it's not a great matchup for Gobert. But um, I, I don't think you can judge a team based on how it fares against one opponent. Yeah, I think I'm less concerned about the Jazz than I am the Thunder, which is weird because the Thunder have the best player between the two, which, you know, matters, obviously, mm-hmm. going forward. But but aging we, curves matter also. Exactly. Aging curves matter. Cap space, even though I don't think Utah is going to sign a marquee free. Although, mm-hmm. like, you mentioned Kemba Walker. I think that's, like, a really interesting one. Those are the guys, to me, Utah— Or, like, a Chris Middleton, even. Right. Like, those are the guys Utah should be targeting. Um, I know it's not the sexiest thing, but, like— I think Dennis Lindsay and Cole, they know they know their market and they know like what they can and can't do. And I, I think they understand that they're not going to chase the Kevin Durant's and the Kawhi Leonard's of the world. But look, if you add a Kemba Walker or a Chris Middleton to this team, like I think that's what they need. They, this team is one, I don't even want to use the word elite, but like one close to elite scorer, ball handler, whatever, away from legit contention. Because I do still believe in Donovan Mitchell. Like I, I've seen... I know it's just easy to get jokes off after a performance like that, and he had a rough series. And I, I've seen people tweeting about like who he really is, and he's not that good, and he shouldn't even have been in the like. Do you forget that a year ago we were talking about this rookie beating the Thunder in the playoffs and outplaying Russell Westbrook in the first round? Like that was only a year ago when he was a rookie. So don't get distracted by what happened this year in the playoffs. I think Donovan Mitchell will recover. Rudy Gobert should still be the best, if not like one of the best defensive players in the league for the next few years. They've got the cap space. They make smart decisions for the most part. They actually do have shooting, although it didn't look like it in this series. They've yeah. got guys who can shoot. Joe Ingles is one of the smartest players. Like, There's things there, and this was a, a product of just a terrible matchup. Yeah, you know, such as life in the Western Conference. You get, but even and this is what I'm saying. Like even in that terrible matchup, I think if they just shot right. At like a normal percentage, they shot twenty six point three percent from three point range in this right. series. They were at thirty, almost thirty six percent in the yep. regular season. Royce O'Neal at thirty four point eight percent was their best three point shooter right. in the series. So, you know, even even then, even though it wasn't a great matchup for them, I still think they could have made it super competitive uh, if you know they just gotten a couple more things to break their way. Yeah, and I think they'll they'll still be a force in the West for years to come. Yeah, and they have time. Yeah. And that's, you know, you're talking about the difference between them and the Thunder. Like, they do have time. And I'm, I'm interested to see what they do with their offseason. You know, is Favors back? Do they make a play to bring Rubio back? Are, you know, what free agents can they bring in if they decide to use that space? Um, yeah, lots of, lots of things to consider for them going forward. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Also, a lot of things to consider in uh, the Eastern Conference playoffs where the second-round matchups are already set. 
So let's just go ahead and preview those while we have the chance. The 1-4 matchup, the Bucks and the Celtics. Um, Celtics eliminated the Bucks last year. Al Horford, you know, the supposed antidote to Giannis Antetokounmpo. Not even supposed, like the numbers back it up. He defended Giannis as well as anybody, and his switchability obviously helps defend Giannis. So do you give the Celtics and Brad Stevens, you know, the perception of Brad Stevens' postseason warlockness, do you give them a chance in this series? Um, I give them a chance, but my instinct is Bucks in five, maybe six. I've been high on the Bucks all year, and I've been kind of low on the Celtics all year. That said, I do think there are some matchup things that the Celtics can look to exploit, and we've seen that through the regular season. I mean, the pick and pop with Kyrie and Horford probably, you know, maybe the single biggest matchup advantage the Celtics have in this series, and a lot will ride on how the Bucks decide to defend that because in one regular season matchup when the Celtics, I think, set the NBA record for most made threes in a game, the Bucks pretty much continually went to that drop coverage and Horford, I think, got seven what were classified as wide open threes in that game and he hit four of them. So toward the end of that game, they, they downsized, they took Brooke, Brooke Lopez off the court, they went to Ilyasova at the five and they started bringing him up to the level of the screen to take that pick and pop away. That opens up a lot of stuff underneath with Horford slipping to the basket, and he's just really canny when it comes to throwing the defense off, slipping screens, and like getting inside, and he's able to make plays on the roll as well. So do they just like downsize and go to Giannis at the five and then start switching that action? Because I think that probably is their best course of action. Um, but Horford definitely poses some issues for them. He's probably going to be their primary Giannis defender. One thing I would do if I was the Celtics, I mean, they've been going to this Baines-Horford front line to start, which has been pretty effective for them. Against the Bucks. I think they should downsize. Like, I think because Brooke Lopez is functionally a wing at this point in time, you can most certainly get away with, you know, whether it's, I don't know, if it's Hayward who you're bumping into the starting lineup or if it's Jalen Brown, like either one of those guys can just stick with Brooke Lopez and I don't think you're giving up too much. And then at the other end, you have the possibility of sort of stretching the bucks out and making them pay for giving up the number of three-pointers they give up. Yeah, the, the horford honest thing to me is what, like, there were some uh, certain matchups where the lesser player has the better player's number, but it, like, it makes sense. I've said this before, it makes sense. Like, physically, it makes sense, whatever. And you're like, okay, I could see that. I could see why this guy defends that guy well. And I respect... Horford's um, defensive ability. I respect his like defensive IQ. He had a, I thought, a really good series against Indiana. You know, we were talking about Stephen Adams not being the same. Like there was a lot of times this year, Al Horford didn't look the same, but then he had a great first round. I thought, so I respect all that. But then you just look at it, and it's like, why do I? Why would I actually believe that Al Horford is going to slow down Giannis Antetokounmpo at the level he's playing at right now? And I just can't. I can't wrap my head around that. And that's why, you know, if if that is their best shot, as I think it is, is, you know, Horford somewhat neutralizing Giannis, then I think they've got no shot because I don't think he can actually do that. And I don't think this Celtics defense... Right, after Horford, there really aren't many options. But that's right? what I'm saying. Like, I just... Like, Jalen Brown will maybe get a look. Jason Tatum, maybe, like, yeah. here and there. Se- Semi Ojale. If Marcus probably. Smart was healthy or if he returns. Like, I don't know, maybe... I know it's, like, a crazy size, but, like, a couple possessions here and there yeah. just to bother him put a hand on his hip I don't know like well it would be sort of similar to like the Beverly on Durant thing right you know you have a, a little guy who's there who can kind of bother you and, yeah. and uh, threaten your dribble a little bit and get underneath you but yeah no I, I don't I think that's their biggest issue is like they don't really have a ton of stuff to throw at Giannis 
I, I just worry, I guess, about like if if the Bucks are able to sort of take away that pick and pop, if they're able to, I mean, nobody really neutralizes Kyrie, but I think, I mean, between Bledsoe and Middleton, like the Bucks have as as many good options as any team to throw at him. Um, where is the Celtics offense coming from? You know, that's that's what I'd worry about more. I think the Bucks to me just have more weapons and more ways to hurt Boston than than vice versa. So. Yeah, I thought um, a really interesting stat to you from the first round. You know, I, I had talked about how the Celtics, even though they were the first one into the second round, like they completed their sweep first, they actually were the least impressive of the top four seeds to me. And someone had shared it on Twitter, but if you look at the net ratings of the top four teams in the East starting, starting lineups lineup. yeah. in the first round, Bucks, Raptors, Sixers, just throttling opponents, the Celtics starting lineup actually had a negative net rating in that series. And, you know... I think the season has showed us, you know, forget last year, the season has showed us, and I think the first round kind of showed us at times that the Celtics after Kyrie, the talent is not what we thought it was in October. I don't know if they have enough secondary talent to hang with legit teams like Milwaukee or Toronto or Philly in the next round or in the final. Like, they do not have the all-encompassing talent that those teams have. And sure, they survived Indiana barely every game. That's the thing. It was a sweep, but it was not a convincing sweep. Pacers led every single game at halftime, which is pretty crazy. I... I just don't think I've seen anything in that first round to change what I, you know, what I thought about the regular season, and that's that the Celtics just aren't good enough to hang with these teams. Yeah, that's, and, and my feeling about that too is, look, even if they can kind of play Brook Lopez off of the floor, you know what that really does to the Bucks. Yeah, it takes away a three-point shooter, but they got plenty of those. What it does to the Bucks is it limits their rim protection, which has been such a huge part of their defensive identity all season. You know what the Celtics don't do? They don't get to or score at the rim. So I don't think that that's like a trade-off that the Bucks are going to sweat too, too much if they ultimately have to leave Brooke on the bench. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of people too, because I saw people tweeting about it even during the Detroit series, and Detroit was trying this at times. You know, like the theory of, well, Giannis can't shoot, so forget, like don't double Giannis, like play Giannis straight up, stick with the Bucks shooters, and you're, you're just giving up two-pointers. Uh, yeah, that's fine, but... When a guy is literally unstoppable getting to the rim, you're not giving up contested fadeaways here. You're giving up layups and dunks and and ones every single time. Like it's Giannis Antetokounmpo is not your standard um, non-shooter where you can say, ah, play it right, like straight, and we'll just give up a bunch of two-point attempts because you're giving up the worst kinds of shots. About you're giving up layups and dunks the whole time. I just don't know unless you have like, uh, I guess Kawhi is one of those guys peak LeBron defensively like, unless you have a guy like that I just don't understand how you're stopping this version of Giannis from getting to the rim yeah I mean it's it's got to be something different than just like straight up double teams right. you know it's like they're showing extra bodies on his drives um, they're building a wall in transition guys are stunting into the post and recovering out to shooters like there are smart ways to go about it and the Celtics are a very smart defensive team I think they'll figure some things out that work I just ultimately don't think they have enough firepower to hang. And in a way, I I respect what they did against the Pacers, even though it wasn't super impressive. Like, they won every single game, and every second half, they were pretty dominant. It seemed like whenever they wanted to dial it up defensively, they were able to do that. So I'm tempted to give them two games here just because of the the sort of matchup things that I talked about that they can give the Bucs some problems with. But it's like, yeah, to me, it's Bucs in five or six, and... I don't really see a universe in which the Celtics win. Yeah. 
I, I'm going Bucks in five and a half. Um, the other East second round matchup, I think, is a lot more interesting because of just we talked about like the Celtics not having that secondary talent. The amount of talent that is going to be on the floor in Raptors Sixers and the amount of just like mouthwatering matchups. You've got Kawhi Leonard probably guarding Ben Simmons, who earlier this year told me that Kawhi is a freak defensively because Kawhi has just absolutely hounded him all year. You've got um, Joel Embiid going up against Marc Gasol, the kind of like youth and power against the old uh, like wisdom of Gasol. And you saw that against Vucevic in the last round. And then you've got all these other, like Kyle Lowry and Danny Green, I guess would be like J.J. Redick and Jimmy Butler. You'd have to like kind of cross match those guys. And then Pascal Siakam, Tobias Harris is like a very important, like just everywhere you look, there is a really awesome matchup and a lot of star talent. How do you see this series going? So I like how those matchups play for Toronto Same. more than I like how they play Same. for Philadelphia. Um, we, we know that Gasol has had as much success as anybody uh, defending Embiid. And I think the Raptors are going to see how much they can get away with as far as defending Embiid one-on-one in the post. And if you're able to do that and stay home on shooters, uh, it's going to be tough for the Sixers to generate offense. They, in the half court, they struggle. They, you know, we, we know they don't run a ton of pick and roll, although they've started to run quite a bit more, actually, uh, with Jimmy Butler running those pick and rolls. But again, it's like you have Gasol to counter Embiid. You have Lowry to chase Redick around screens. Uh, you have Danny Green to throw at Jimmy Butler. You have Siakam to throw at Harris. And Kawhi, a lot of teams with Simmons, what they do is they play well off of him and just give him space and try to muck up the middle of the floor. The Raptors have had a bit of a different strategy. Kawhi's kind of played up on Simmons to take his dribble away, has managed to turn him over a ton. And I, I kind of like that approach when you have someone like Kawhi who has as good you know, with his hands at generating deflections and turnovers because then it's like the Sixers can't even really get into their offense. And another thing that would worry me about the Sixers is they, they've been a turnover machine all year long, and the Raptors have really thrived off of running and, and getting out off of live ball turnovers. So, you know, transition is going to be a big thing in this series. And, and I, I just think as talented as the Sixers are, I think they're running into a bad matchup where uh, they have a team that can counter them for size at pretty much every position. And I think like the Raptors are so much better equipped to defend Philly than Philly is to defend the Raptors. Exactly. Like I don't worry about Pascal Siakam defending Tobias Harris, no, whereas I, like Tobias Harris defending Pascal Siakam could be no bueno. I actually think that could be the matchup that breaks this series for, mm. uh, you know, breaks it for Philly and opens it for Toronto because for as good as Tobias Harris is, we, like he's not a great defensive player, but Pascal Siakam is a two-way stud, and I just like Tobias can't keep up with him either. Like Pascal's a lot quicker than he is. Um, he's going to get down the floor a lot quicker than Tobias Harris does. He's just I, I don't see how Pascal doesn't win that one-on-one match. Well, obviously, you know Tobias is good enough that in a small sample size he can absolutely win it, but Pascal should win that matchup, and I think that's going to be very key for Toronto just because we've seen uh, in this matchup in particular before Marc Gasol and Tobias Harris got there we saw how this matchup went and the key takeaway was always that Philly needed another weapon well they go out and get that weapon in Tobias Harris but if Pascal Siakam can just neutralize that guy like yeah I think there's going to be a lot of 
like the Sixers play a pretty aggressive drop, especially when it's Boban out there with the second unit. And the Raptors will gladly take those mid-range jumpers. Especially and they've been, if it's Kawhi. Yeah, they've been really good at hitting those this season. And not just Kawhi, but like Gasol, Oribaka on the pick and pop, you know, from the elbow. They're a really good mid-range shooting team. Again, you know, the Raptors don't rely too, too much on scoring at the rim. So like the rim protection that Embiid offers isn't quite as valuable. I, yeah, I just I just think that this is not a great matchup for Philly. And I, I do believe in their talent, but I think they're running into a more talented team. So um, my instinct for this is Raps in five. Wow. Raps yeah. in five. Yeah. That is... You know, I, I, I have seen a lot of people say that they think the Raptors will handle it with ease. I don't know if I want to go that far. I mean, to be clear, like, it won't be a Raptors in five like it was a Raptors in five over the Magic. Right. Like, I think it'll be five tough games, but... I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't see this series being 2-2 no, at any point. It's fair because, like, again, you just go, like, you know, no one's stopping Joel Embiid, but there's a couple guys in the league that have, A, had success against him and are, are like, physically built to at least slow him down. Marcus Gasol's one of those guys. Uh, ben Simmons, you know, forget the non-shooting thing, like, great in transition, does all these things. Like, no one has snatched his soul like Kawhi Leonard did this season. Jimmy Butler, great defender. You can usually put him on the opposing team's number one scorer. Well, in the Raptors and Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler has a guy that he's never defended well because the size advantage is just too drastic. So, like, all the things where Philly usually has an advantage in at least one or two of those three spots, they don't have an advantage anywhere, really. Uh, and I just, yeah, I, I, I don't see how they win this series unless, you know, if Embiid has a series of his life and just completely solves Marcus Gasol, then sure, they can absolutely mm-hmm. win it because the Raptors have no other answers for him. There's ways they can win it, obviously, but... I'm going Raps and six. Okay. Yeah, I think if Embiid was like fully healthy, then I would go Raps and six rather than Raps and five. But I think yeah, that's the other thing too. Embiid's given health. given that, I mean, look, in those last few games against the Nets, he looked pretty damn good. But his mobility is not a hundred percent right now, and I just yeah, I mean, if if they're not getting enough through him, and like he's not Nikola Vucevic, obviously, but just having seen what Gasol did to Vucevic in the first rounds, like doesn't give me a lot of optimism that Embiid's going to be a serious breaker here. The one thing I think that might be able to sort of swing that is if he's just getting Gasol in early foul trouble every single game, which is a possibility. And then, you know, if he's able to go up against Serge Ibaka, then, I mean, we obviously, like, yeah, if if he's going up against Serge instead of against Gasol, then he can eat. Yeah, I mean, Joel Embiid, obviously not Nikola Vucevic. Marc Gasol also... Slightly bigger man than Jared Allen. Little, little heftier than Jared Allen was. So, I think that does it for playoff talk. A couple minutes before we go. I know there's something else you want to address. What is it? So, after one year, the Suns fired Igor Kokoshkov. Great for, pronunciation of his name. There. For reasons. <laughs> um, I, and look, like, I, I have always found it quite difficult to evaluate coaches. So, talking about stuff like this is always like a little bit difficult for me because I think there is like a limited amount of stuff that you can do as a coach of, of a team like Phoenix that just has you know pretty much zero defensive talent and a lot of young players and guys who have are still sort of figuring out how to how to adapt to the NBA game but to to bring in a guy who I think a lot of people are really excited about coming in and then to just give up on him after one year like you're trying to build a program here you're trying to build a culture like I don't know how you can do that if you're having so much turnover I just 
don't really understand the reason behind it other than the Suns are just delusional about like what their expectations ought to have been this season which given that they signed Trevor Ariza to like a 15 million dollar deal in the offseason is maybe true maybe they expected to be better than 19 and 63 I just think if you're trying to build a team from the ground up continuity is really important and I can't say that I understand where this move is coming from yeah I think we've learned over the last few years that Robert Sarver is not a good owner it's one thing to be James Dolan you know bad meddling but spending money it's not and it's another thing to be Robert Sarver where you're cheap and still meddling and that's kind of the franchise the Suns have right now like you look at their uh recent history of coaching hires and the reports that have come out later that Sarver like didn't want to spend the money on a top coach after Hornacek's gone they bring in Earl Watson doesn't do a great job to finish the season but then they reward him by making him the full-time coach the next year and then fire him three games into three the season. games in the season and then he comes out actually a couple weeks ago and says did you see this Earl Watson said a couple weeks ago that he was told going into that season in training camp that he was going to be fired earlier in the year and like they just kept it under wraps but he knew it was coming yeah it was the most bizarre thing so there's that then they let Jay Triano take over for like 79 games. Then they bring in uh, Igor Koskosov. You, you say the name way better than it. Kokoshkov? Kokoshkov. Um, I always thought it was Koskoskov. Or, yeah, I thought it was like that. But anyway. Um, Just call him Igor. Yeah. They bring in Igor. And you think, okay, like they thought outside the box. They bring in Igor. You know, he's got the European history. And at least they're like, they're committing to... Uh, a fresh idea that they're probably a coach they're going to build with going forward. They've got this young team. They've got Booker. They draft Dayton. And instead, yeah, he's gone in a year. It's like, what? What What did you expect of this team you put together? And also, if you want a better coaching job than what you've seen the last half decade, spend some money. Go get a real big-time NBA coach. Or even if it's a first-time coach, like someone you've done your due diligence with and you might actually have to pay a lot of money. But... You can't be cheap, not want to spend top dollar on like top name guys, and then be like, oh, by the way, also you're not good enough for this franchise. Yeah, but and also like if a, a coach from the outside is looking at like the dysfunction that has just racked this team for the last few years, the clown show that it's become, and the fact that they just go through coaches like a revolving door, are you like are you gonna want to sign up for that, knowing that like you probably don't have a ton of job security and can't really rely on the front office for any sort of stability? for good communication like for anything it it's just really disappointing and like honestly this could all turn around in a hurry if they get the number one pick and land zion williamson right then suddenly that is a pretty attractive coaching job and they could ultimately be rewarded for all this stupidity but for now it's just confusing and and confounding and disappointing since that unlikely run to the west finals in 2010 the suns have had one winning season in the last nine years and that one winning season was when they were actually trying to tank they went into that year clearly trying to tank and they shook the world shocked the world by winning 48 games still missing the playoffs though that's their only winning season their last four years 19 wins 21 wins 24 wins 23 wins yeah I really adored that 2013-14 team, too. You know, Bledsoe and Dragic played super, super fast. Um, That was a really fun team. So, All that said, the most memorable moments the last few years, besides Devin Booker's high-scoring losses, have been Eric Bledsoe tweeting, get me out of here, or whatever he said, I want to be at, whatever he said. Great decision by Eric Bledsoe, by the way. From the barbershop. Yeah. And uh, goat shitting in whose office was it? Uh, Ryan McDonough's. Yeah. Like, 
I think even though he's an owner, not a general manager, I think we found our new Ernie Grunfeld for next season, and it's Robert Sarver. Because this thing is a clown show. Yeah. Well, I don't anticipate Robert Sarver being out of power anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's getting so, fired. Yeah. All right. I think that does it for another edition of Pound the Rock. We will see how the West matchups break for the second round and how those juicy East second round matchups go. But we'll talk to you next week. Bye.